Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober, right here on Green Earth Radio. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore on Green Earth Radio. My guest today is Kayla Daniel, author of The Whole Soy Story. Plus, my desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to the appetizers and find out what's happened in the world of real food. The FDA is about to give final approval on genetically engineered salmon. The GMO salmon will be altered to produce extra growth hormones so it can grow bigger and faster than natural salmon. No independent studies have been conducted to show the safety of genetically modified salmon. The salmon won't be labeled, so people will have no way of knowing if they're purchasing natural salmon or not. This is another example of how the FDA doesn't have people's health at its best interest. Next, the American Farm Bureau Federation, also known as the AFBF, a national non-government organization that alleges to represent the interests of American farmers, is attempting to ban sales of raw milk in South Carolina. The South Carolina Dairy Advisory Committee is considering accepting the AFBF's proposal. If the AFBF is truly about the farmers' best interests, then they should allow farmers to have the freedom to sell fresh, raw milk. The AFBF is known to basically be a front for big agriculture. In other raw milk news, the Missouri State Milk Board is shutting down cheese manufacturer Morningland Dairy. Morningland has been involved in a two-and-a-half-year battle with the Milk Board after their cheese was seized in the raid of the Rossum Foods Buying Club in Venice, California. The Milk Board has originally told Morningland that their production would only be shut down for a few days, but the FDA got involved more in the case and pressured the Milk Board to halt Morningland's operations. Also, Annie's Inc. has decided itself to recall seven of its varieties of frozen pizza sold nationwide due to the possibility that the metal fragments had made their way into the dough from a failure of a metal mesh screen at a third-party flour mill. Annie's is a company known for natural products, which goes to show that even foods billed as natural are at risk of contamination. And finally, researchers in Taiwan have found that the chemical melamine can leach off of tableware and into food. The researchers say the amounts in the tableware are small, and their findings show them not to be harmful. But melamine itself is known to be dangerous, as babies in China have been sickened and died from the baby formula that contained it. I find these studies to be inconclusive in saying that tableware that has melamine in it is safe. And personally, I plan to avoid tableware that contains it. And now for our main course, which today is The Dangers of Soy. For a long time, we've been told that soy is a health food. Replace your meat with soy. Have some tofu. Snack on this edamame. Now, if you're a regular listener to my show, you of course know that properly sourced meat isn't bad for you. But not only are there health benefits of pasture meats, there are dangers in consuming soy in place of animal products. These so-called vegan health gurus can get protein and calcium from soy instead of from meat and dairy. The problem is soy is high in many anti-nutrients, such as phytates and lectins, 
which make us unable to digest all of the protein or calcium. They don't have the fat-soluble vitamins that are found only in meat, eggs, and dairy. And then there's the argument that only the processed soy foods are bad, but that natural soy products such as tempeh and miso are good for you. The problem is, in the U.S., these soy dishes aren't fermented correctly like they have been in traditional Asian cultures. Here to talk with me about the dangers of soy is Kayla Daniel. Kayla Daniel is vice president of the Weston A. Price Foundation. She has a blog called The Naughty Nutritionist, and she wrote the excellent book, The Whole Soy Story. Kayla, thank you so much for agreeing to come on my show and tell everyone the truth about soy. Well, thank you, Erin. It's, it's great to be on your show, and we're truth tellers, aren't we? Absolutely. And your book, The Whole Soy Story, it's so wonderful. Being a member of the Weston Price Foundation and just following the whole sustainable natural foods, like I thought I knew everything about the dangers of soy, but when I read your book, I realized there's so much more to it in terms of what soy can do to you. And also, I didn't realize as much about how these fermented soys, in the U.S., they're often not fermented correctly like they have been in the traditional Asian cultures. Uh, yeah, it's a very complicated subject, and in some ways, I was writing about soy, but the larger theme of the book is dirty little secrets of the food processing industry, because all of the things about soy that I'm talking about, whether it's the way it's being marketed and hyped as a health food, or the way it's being packaged, and the way it's being processed, fast processed for a profit, uh, we're seeing so many cases of that across the health food industry. Right. I certainly saw that in the book that I think while the title is The Whole Soy Story and certainly soy is what's talked about in every chapter, there was that theme of you could apply this to a lot of foods. So now what got you interested in the first place in the sustainable natural foods world? Oh, that's that's a great question, a big question. Uh, well, like a lot of people, I wasn't very healthy in my 30s and um, started seeking answers. Uh, I don't think I ever really trusted doctors and, and drugs, so I was seeking it in the alternative field and um, tried everything that was out there. I did macrobiotics. I did Ayurvedic medicine. I did um, live food veganism. I did juicing. I, You name it, I did it. And most of those things weren't very helpful. And it wasn't until I reintroduced meat to my diet uh, that I started to feel better. Uh, but the good thing about having experimented with all those things is now I'm quite knowledgeable about it. And that helps me help a lot of clients because I really know the territory. I know all the ways people can go astray because I've done them. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And was part of the thing of reintroducing meat to your diet, was the Weston A. Price Foundation something that got you to reintroduce the meat? Well, uh, the Weston A. Price Foundation had not yet been founded at that point, and I was not at that point aware of Price Pottinger either. Uh, that came later. Uh, the first thing was I saw in a book that I thumbed through at one of the health food stores, uh, Anne Louise Gittleman recommending that we eat meat. And the first couple of times I did that, it offended me. I thought there must be a way I could do a perfect vegetarian or vegan diet and I didn't have to eat meat. But I kept coming back to the fact that no matter how perfectly I tried anything, I wasn't well. And uh, at a certain point, I took that advice, and uh, from there, um, I've learned more and more. And, uh, of course, when founded the Weston Price Foundation, I jumped right on board. 
So you were one of the original members of the Weston Price Foundation. Yes, I was. Sally, uh, I was, I was very blessed to have her recognize how I could help very early on. Well, that's great. And then what got you interested in the topic specifically of soy that you wanted to write an entire book on it? Uh, yes, uh, soy, uh, it was because like many, many people, I was seeing all the headlines in the magazines and the newspapers, things saying like the joy of soy, the soy of cooking, soy would cure everything, uh, soy would prevent everything from ingrown toenails to cancer. And I wanted to believe it. I wanted to believe that something that was cheap and inexpensive and I thought would be good for the environment would also help my personal health. I mean, what a combination, personal health, planetary health, we can save them both. But unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. Had you noticed when you had done things such as veganism, had you noticed the dangers of soy and had some health problems when you consumed soy? Well, the good thing for me was I never actually consumed much soy. I always hated it. Uh, I think I tried soy milk once, and I thought it was really pretty awful. <laughs> So uh, I was doing miso soup, I was doing some tempeh, and they're actually good foods. I continue to to have them, of course, not very often. Um, well, miso soup I can have pretty often. Uh, never found natto in any place that I lived, um, and that's a smelly, gooey product that's popular in parts of Japan. That would be really healthy for us, but I think I've tasted it once. Um, not really all that appealing, but I do believe it's healthy. So in a way, I was lucky. I didn't consume soy milk every day. I wasn't doing the veggie burgers. I certainly wasn't doing energy shakes and energy bars and any of those things. And back then, the popularity of, of mushing on a whole bag of edamame, that hadn't taken off yet. I mean, at the time, maybe you could find a little edamame in the freezer section. And now Whole Foods has got like a whole couple cases full of that darn stuff. So it's really changed from the point when I was experimenting with vegan and vegetarian diets. And I'm sure with edamame, you get the question from people like I do of, well, you can't say that edamame is bad for you. <laughs> Everybody thinks it's, it's, it's natural. It's just a green bean. You know, um, how can that be unhealthy for you? And I think that's seriously naive to think that because a bean is natural that it can't be bad for us. I mean, you know, Google Favism if you want to know how a bean can, can really destroy your health and life. Um, so the thing with edamame that I always tell people is it seems natural and, um, you know, if you enjoy it and you go to a Japanese restaurant and you get six pods um, at, uh, as an appetizer, that's not a big deal. But if you're taking a whole bag of it and eating it like it's popcorn, that is excessive. And you're lucky if you have digestive problems because that'll be a warning to you. And you're unlucky if you're eating that every night because sooner or later your thyroid's going to start reacting to that and just as with any other soy product. And the most familiar symptoms we're seeing with thyroid would be hypothyroidism with its uh, loss of energy, fatigue, malaise, um, loss of libido, uh, weight gain. These are familiar midlife symptoms related to hypothyroidism and people who start eating a lot of soy whether it's tofu or energy bars or shake powders or edamame, sooner or later, the symptom they're, they're going to have show up will be related to the thyroid. I love the analogy you give of people eating 
edamame like it's popcorn. I've heard you say that before, and that's always the answer is actually from hearing you say that. I always tell people, sure, it's good in moderation in small amounts. Also, another thing to remember is a lot of times edamame can be GMO if it's not organic. So if you're eating non-organic edamame, good chance that it's genetically modified. We do have to look out for that. Uh, a whole lot of the health food store soy products, including edamame, they will say organic. And if the labeling's accurate, at least that's a step in the right direction because GMO soy, of course, is so much worse than, than organic soy in terms of both the environment and also in terms of the way you might be reacting to it personally. But what a lot of people just don't understand is that all soybeans, whether they're organic or GMO or just regular commercial soybeans uh, from the pre-GMO era, that all of them contain the plant estrogens, all of them have the anti-nutrients like phytates and trypsin inhibitors and lectins and saponins and oxalates and the oligosaccharides that can give you all that gas, they all got it. So um, that's that's the nature of soybeans. It's just those are often worse and more numerous in the case of the GMO beans. Right. Phytates certainly are a problem with soybeans and really with a lot of vegetables. Now explain to listeners exactly what phytates are because I'll often say that, that they're high in phytates and people say, what is that? Well, the simplest way to explain it is just that phytates bind with needed minerals. Uh, so... A good example would be people uh, will drink soy milk because they're maybe they're reacting poorly to commercial dairy products or they've just heard dairy's bad and they think they should drink soy milk and they're drinking the soy milk for the calcium. Well, first of all, the calcium's been added by the manufacturers, so it's cheap and hard to absorb anyway. But there's also a load of phytates in that soy milk. So if the phytates are binding with the calcium, you're not getting much benefit, if any, for your bones. And that's the problem in general with phytates. And they're not just in soybeans. They're in other beans. They're in many different vegetables and, and foods. But they're high in the soybeans. And the nature of soybean processing is such that they're only going to be minimized at best they're never going to be eliminated. So often people who are on vegetarian diets high in grains and high in soy and high in other beans will become zinc deficient, among other things, and um, because the phytates are binding with the, the zinc we need so much. That was one of the things that I kind of applied the book to was not just soy, but to all legumes and grains and also nuts, all those foods that are high in phytates. I saw this book as a good example of the dangers of having too much of that. How much foods of these types, such as grains and legumes, do you think people should consume, like, on a weekly basis? Well, it varies from person to person. And there are people these days who don't do very well with any wheat or gluten-containing grains whatsoever. And um, some people will say that if one piece of bread, they'll gain a couple pounds. And that might sound like an exaggeration, but not necessarily with some people. Um, and the amount of, say, grains and beans one should have, that's going to vary from person to person, depending on, you know, our own specific health problems and also just, just how we're feeling from them. I mean, somebody who gets a whole lot of gas from soy and other beans, um, maybe that's your body telling you that this is not, not the right food for you. So, 
uh, how much to have. The question I often get is how much soy. That might be the easiest one to answer. Uh, really, uh, if you enjoy miso soup, say a little of that every day should be just fine if you're not allergic to soy. And I do enjoy miso soup pretty often. A little uh, natto or tempeh once in a while, that's all good. Even a little tofu once in a while. Um, I'm talking about if you're, say, at a friend's house, at a vegetarian potluck and there's tofu there, don't worry about it if you're not allergic to it. But in terms of what you're doing day in, day out, the Israeli Health Ministry has warned us that that children up to age 18 should not have soy more than once a day and not more than three times a week. And that's for children with developing bodies and brains. But I think that three times a week is is actually a good figure for, for any of us to take care not to do it very often. And in terms of junk soy food products like energy bars, shake powders, veggie burgers, and all of those things, I would consider them as junk foods just like anything, say, made out of wheat gluten or any of these other fake products that are being marketed to so-called health-conscious people and vegans. And these are highly processed foods, and whether there's soy in them or wheat gluten, these are not things we should be eating. Right. Now you talked about how you recommend some of the good things like the miso and the uh, the natto um, and tempeh. Um, in your book, you had talked about how in a lot of places in the U.S., they're not properly fermented like they have been in Asian traditions. When you get these foods, do you try to find ones that are fermented the correct way? Uh, in terms of miso, I like South River miso. Uh, it comes in glass jars. Uh, everything about it feels like the real thing. It's run by a small company. Um, it seems like a very honest product to me. Um, anything that would be any of the fast processed misos or instant misos, that's another thing altogether. They're not going to have been made properly. In terms of soy sauce, there's only a brand or so of them that would be the unpasteurized, raw, long-term fermented shoyus or soy sauces. Uh, just about all the tamaris and shoyus we'll find in the store, they don't even mention that they're pasteurized on the label. You wouldn't know it. The ingredients sound fine, but they pasteurize them, and they're they're done quickly. Now, again, if you're just using that here and there for some flavoring, uh, I don't really think it's that big a deal. But the real product, something like the Osawa, um, what's the, what do they call it? Anyway, they have a raw shoyu, and it's good. Right, because I know the big soy sauce that you find in often in these Asian restaurants, the Kiko Man, is not fermented. And I've actually started taking Stanley Fishman's idea of using fish sauce instead of soy sauce. I enjoy fish sauce, you know, different flavor and, um, you know, mix it up. I have the, the, the genuine old fashioned soy sauce. I've got that. I've got a good fish sauce. I've got Celtic sea salt and Himalayan sea salt. I like a, you know, different types of wonderful salt. Um, so when I'm looking for a salty flavor, depending on what's going to work best with what I'm cooking that day, uh, sometimes it might be the, the real soy sauce. Mm -hmm. And now you're also talking about how a lot of this soy, the problem is it is these processed foods and there's different types of processed soy. I know there's the uh, textured soy protein and the soy protein isolate and the uh, soy lecithin. And these are found in a lot of, um, even if you won't think of them as soy foods, but like a lot of the candies have the soy lecithin in it. 
And I know in your book you talk about there's a differing in terms of which ones of these are really bad and then some of them are not as problematic. Yeah, um, you're going to find soy lecithin in, in just about everything that comes in a package. And it's usually just a tiny amount. And unless you're allergic to soy, it's not a big deal. And even some people who are allergic to soy don't react to soy lecithin. But we are seeing more and more people who have severe soy allergies, and they have to avoid that completely. But basically, most, say, good quality chocolate bars are going to have lecithin. And if you, like a lot of vegans, think chocolate's one of the four major food groups, uh, <laughs> it's going to be more challenging to find a chocolate bar that does not have lecithin. For those of us who just eat chocolate occasionally and are not allergic to soy, I mean, this is not really a big deal. Uh, what I'm concerned about are the products that have a lot of soy protein isolate, soy protein concentrate, hydrolyzed vegetable protein, uh, textured vegetable protein. All of those modern industrial processed soy ingredients that came in after World War II. They are really unhealthy for us. Um, but the same type of thing, hydrolyzed corn protein, wheat protein, uh, any of these processes will will really damage a lot of different foods. So it's not just soy. It's the whole issue about dirty little secrets of the food processing industry. Right. I think a lot of the things that are similar with these processed soy additives are similar to, like, say, high fructose corn syrup. Exactly. And somehow the soy products, no matter how horribly processed they are, are being pushed as healthy health foods. And everybody knows that high fructose corn syrup is not a health food. I mean, there's some controversy about whether it's as bad as, as people like I will, will say it is and you will say it is. Um, we're definitely anti high fructose corn syrup. Um, but the thing is nobody's pushing it as a health food. The best anybody's trying to promote it as is the same as regular corn syrup and no worse than sugar. How exactly did all of this start where we start putting soy in all of these foods? I would say it started uh, when the soy industry had a lot of leftover soy protein from vegetable oil manufacture. So they would start off with soybean, and the soybean doesn't willingly give up its uh, oil. You know, they have to use some very serious processing methods, billion-dollar plants, hexane solvents, high pressure, all sorts of things. So they get the oil out, and then they sell it as vegetable oil or Wesson oil or whatever it's going out into the world as. A lot of it turned into partially hydrogenated products such as margarine and shortening. Uh, so there was a huge market for the soy oil. So they had soy protein left over. So what were they going to do with it? Well, it actually makes a good fertilizer, but all the chemical fertilizer companies, they had that market cornered. There was only so much they could put into animal feed, and the USDA actually had wonderful top scientists working for many years to try to figure out how you could increase the amount of soy in feeds given to chickens and cows and other animals. And the bottom line is these top scientists could find only such and such a percentage. It varies from animal to animal. But basically, they couldn't put more soy feed into animals after a certain point. So what are they going to do with it? It costs money to take it to the landfill and just dump it. 
So you don't want to do that if you're a good businessman. You want to turn it into another profit center. So somebody got the very smart idea, well, let's market it to people. But so I had a terrible image. Uh, it had the image of hippies, you know, stirring up the soybeans at a commune or as something people who were very poor and broke and unfortunate would eat, uh, something you'd get in Cuba or Russia or if you were just plain broke. It had a terrible image problem. So somebody who was quite brilliant came up with the idea, well, let's turn it into a health food. And the idea was then the rich people who could afford anything would buy it at a high price because it was a healthy food, a healthy option. The image would improve and middle class and lower class people would want the soy as well. So that took care of that terrible image problem it had. So that's where it really came from. And then they started developing health claims for soy protein and it just took off. You talked also about how soy is given in some animal feed and that is another part of where we are exposed to a lot of soy and i mean if you get grass-fed beef then if it's like 100 percent grass-fed you have no worries about soy but i know one of the big problems is getting eggs that are soy free that a lot of these pastured eggs are fed soy i know even sally fallon says she's had a hard time getting soy free eggs for me it's been a conflict because i found some eggs that are soy free the thing is the chickens aren't fully pastured. And then I see some where the chickens are pastured and living in really great open conditions, but they're fed soy. What would be your recommendation for which of the two to go with if you could only have either soy-free or fully pastured? Well, that would be an interesting um, choice to have to make, and we'd be lucky to actually be able to make that choice. I mean, some of us have to, you know, just get whatever is the best we can get in our area. Uh, unless we're severely allergic to soy, it's not something we need to worry about. Uh, we, I definitely recommend getting the best possible eggs we can and telling our farmers that we want soy-free chickens, and we're also willing to pay whatever extra it costs to get those eggs. So it could very well mean that our eggs are then, say, $6 a dozen, but the eggs will have more orange yolks, the, sh the shells will be uh, harder, there'll be a different uh, quality to the egg white. Everything about it is a new and improved egg with the soy-free feed. And there are more and more soy-free feeds available, but they do cost more. So it's very important that we let our dollars talk and we tell our farmers what we want and also be very clear we're willing to pay for it. So I think we really just have to get out there and talk to our farmers. And I do have that option a little. It's, I think, um, I would say a seasonal thing where you can't get the uh, the pastured soy-free eggs all year round. And in L.A., they go for about, I'd say, like 8 or $9 a dozen. So... There is that option sometimes around there where I actually have the full thing. But other than that, um, it's for me, it's typically buying the pastured eggs because I find them having a, an orange or yolk than any of these soy-free eggs that I see at the farmer's market. Mm -hmm. I like to uh, support my local farmers, and I buy most of my eggs at a co-op here. And uh, basically, I'll rotate the different eggs and, you know, some of them, you know, I, I just figure I'm optimizing the chance of, of getting all the nutrition I want by, by rotating because some will be stronger in certain ways and some in other ways. And 
we just have to do the best we can. And I just want people to know that if they can't get perfect eggs or near perfect eggs, that any eggs are better than not eating Absolutely. eggs. Absolutely. Yeah. And I do a little of the rotating too. I mean, sometimes I'll buy these great ones in the supermarket that are pastured but have soy. And then sometimes I'll buy the ones in the farmer's market where they're soy free, but don't have a little of an orange yolk. So yeah, I, I kind of mix it up as well. So Certainly, we'll be talking more about soy, uh, but first we have to take a word from our sponsors. To Your Health Sprouted Flour Company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products, hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products. Visit our website at organicsproutedflour.net or call toll-free 877-401-6837. What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. Join for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details. Perry Pure Eco Rag Industry is an eco-conscious clothing line. Designed and manufactured in Los Angeles, Perry is dedicated to sustainability by using certified organic, eco-friendly, and reclaimed fabrics and using low-impact dyes in its solar-powered facility. The Perry collections are inspired by the changing colors and moods of nature. A portion of all sales go to organizations that support the health of our oceans and seas. Shop today at perrythelabel.com, and for listeners of The Appropriate Omnivore, you'll receive 45% off all items when you use the code OMNI45. And we're back. I'm talking to Kayla Daniel, author of The Whole Soy Story. We've been talking about the dangers of soy, and I've been talking about how certainly her book, The Whole Soy Story, has taught me more than I knew about soy. Her book is literally The Whole Soy Story. I'm interested to know, what are some of the things that you found when researching the subject of soy that you didn't know before? Oh, oh, there was so much in that book that I didn't know. I mean, it was such an education for me. Uh, I did a lot of the research for the book as part of my PhD program, and that allowed me to become immersed in all those subjects about phytates and trypsin inhibitors and oligosaccharides and uh, the plant estrogens and just so many topics, just so much I learned as part of this project. Uh, it was quite an education. And I continue to learn. Um, we're learning more and more about the dangers of oxalates, and it turns out that soy products can be very high in oxalates. Um, that was a fairly new uh, revelation at the point my book was published, so I have a short chapter on oxalates. But at this point, the Weston Price Foundation is uh, involved with a lawsuit against the state of Illinois having to do with the cruel and inhuman treatment to prisoners who are eating a very, very high soy diet. And it turns out that we've tested these prisoners, and uh, many of them have a lot of damage to their systems from oxalates. So that's an issue we're learning a great deal about right now. 
And I just continue to be amazed at, at what turns up. I mean, in terms of products, for example, that contain soy where you'd never guess it's there. And, you know, for you and me, Aaron, we're not allergic to soy. So if we get a little bit once in a while, no big deal. But more and more people are severely allergic to soy, going into anaphylactic reactions, um, dying. And there are sources of soy you would not guess. It's in some medications, even inhalers, believe it or not. There's a little soy in some celestial seasonings tea. I just learned that a pre-seasoned uh, cast iron pan that you buy, they pre-seasoned it with, guess what, soy oil. And so it goes, it just, the, it's just a non-ending surprise about where soy might be lurking in, in the food supply, beauty supply market, um, uh, so, so many things. It could be in fabric softener. I mean, can you imagine if you're severely allergic to soy and you go to a hotel and they've softened those sheets with something with soy in it? I mean, constant surprises and dangers for people who are allergic to soy. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why, like you were saying, if you don't have an allergy to soy, having the occasional product with soy lecithin isn't a problem. But a reason that I think soy should be removed from a lot of these products is because it is one of the top allergens. So in addition to some of these non-food products that soy is in, surprisingly, what are some foods that people wouldn't think have soy in them? Well, here's one that absolutely stunned me when I learned about it. Uh, some very smart students at Purdue came up with a new product, and it was part of a competition having to do with new uses for corn and soy. And, you know, I admire their inventiveness and, and all of that. But in terms of, of what this could mean to people with soy allergies, it, it could be devastating. Uh, they came up with melt-away cupcake liners. So you line your pans with these uh, melt-away liners. And then basically the soy liners, basically they merge with the, <laughs> with the cupcake so you can eat it. So you've got nothing to throw in the trash. But guess what? You're getting soy in there. Right. And now you talked earlier about soy milk. Um, and the thing about soy milk is, you know, a lot of times people that are allergic to dairy, which is another top allergen, they'll drink soy milk. So since soy is pretty dangerous and the soy milk is heavily processed, what would you recommend as a alternative for people that have dairy allergies? That is a great question, and uh, I'm going to have to give you a fairly long answer, but I hope it's helpful. Uh, the number one choice uh, is is raw milk, and many people who who um, do not tolerate supermarket milk for whatever reason will thrive on the raw milk. Now, as you know, that can be hard to get depending on where you live, uh, but if you're able to tolerate and even thrive on the raw milk, that is your number one solution because a lot of the problems with dairy are not because of milk per se, but because of the processing, because of the factory farm cows. And in that category, I include all the, um, the, um, supermarket size health food stores selling um, pseudo-organic milk products where the cows are allegedly grass-fed and pastured but spend almost all their time in factory farm conditions where the milk is ultra-pasteurized. Uh, people don't tolerate that stuff much better than, than the regular supermarket milks. So raw milk's completely different. 
Now, at this point, though, we have so many people who are so sick and so sensitive that some of them can't tolerate any milk whatsoever. The next best thing for them is to have a whole lot of bone broth and have that every day. And that's actually a perfectly good recommendation whether or not we're eating eating raw milk and dairy products. So if we have a lot of genuine homemade bone broth, we're getting not only all that good calcium, but we're getting all sorts of trace minerals in a form that the body can really, really use. We're getting it from the bone, and guess what? You know, you eat bone, and it helps you produce healthy bones. You're eating collagen and cartilage. You're going to have good joints. You're going to have good skin. Uh, but it's such a better solution uh, in terms of food. Now, so many people say they need to drink soy milk because they can't drink regular milk. But then it turns out that the only reason soy milk can call itself equivalent in terms of, say, calcium is that the manufacturers add cheap supplemental calcium. They add cheap vitamin D2, which is the vegetarian version, which is not so good for us. There's plenty of phytates in there. And I say to people, if you're drinking soy milk because of the supplements, why don't you just throw the soy milk down the drain and get yourself a good quality supplement with an absorbable form of calcium, an appropriate form of vitamin D, and uh, skip the soy milk altogether. Now, if they're wanting something that's that's white, uh, coconut milk is great, um, but it's not the same as dairy. It's just got its own virtues. But you can make wonderful cream soups and curries with coconut milk as as one of the ingredients. And um, I'm not a big fan of, say, almond milk or barley milk or rice milk or any of those things in the stores. Uh, they're basically a lot of sweetener, a lot of sugar, a lot of carbs, very little nutrition. And once again, because they're pandering to the vegan market, you get vitamin D2. And we don't want vitamin D2. It's not just that it doesn't work. It's not very good for us. And I see some problems with the store-bought coconut milk that are similar to, say, the store-bought almond milk in that both of them, they add in these synthetic vitamins, which aren't the same as getting the natural vitamins also, a top ingredient in a lot of these almond milks and coconut milks that you find in the stores is carrageenan. So, I mean, my advice to people is if you really want to get that milky taste, homemade coconut milk is the best or homemade almond milk because with almond milk, you also have a similar problem with dairy that you find in stores, which is the almonds are pasteurized. Right. So if you can get genuine raw almonds and you're going to really have to look for those uh, because they're not readily Farmers available. Farmers markets typically is where you have to find them. Yeah, you have to ask a lot of questions because they can still say they're raw even when they've treated them chemically with, <laughs> it's scary. Um, but if we make our own almond milk once in a while with uh, with the completely raw, unpasteurized almonds, um, that's perfectly good, but let's not consider it an equivalent to a dairy milk. It's just something right. else. Right. It's not because, I mean, it doesn't have the fat-soluble vitamins that dairy milk has in it. And, I mean, that's the thing about getting protein from meats and dairy and eggs versus getting protein from any kind of plant source is you can't get the full protein um because of all the anti-nutrients in them, as well as the lack of the fat-soluble vitamins. Right. Now, the Weston Price you are talking earlier, they're doing the case against the prisoners, and 
I know there's other things that Weston Price is doing in terms of uh, alerting people about soy. There's the Facebook page, Soy Alert, and what are some other plans that Weston A. Price has coming up for educating people more about soy? Well, I think it's mostly just, um, you know, just continuing what we're already doing. Uh, bit by bit, the word's getting out. The soy industry in its newsletters does some whining about how they're no longer experiencing double-digit growth, in part because of bad news stories about soy. So I think um, the Western Price Foundation can credit itself with um, with some of that bad news publicity out there about soy. And also, of course, as more and more people started eating soy, consuming it in quantity, more and more people are starting to have health disastrous effects from it, and the word gets out about that. I mean, people talk to each other, and you can't keep quiet something like that. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, it is um, something that we are hearing more about the news, and I think that's a lot of what people know the Weston A. Price Foundation for, actually. I know someone that that was the... First thing he said to me was he knew about them because of their their fight against soy. And he's actually a vegetarian who tries to avoid soy. So I thought that was interesting. Is there, though, some trouble in trying to keep up the fight with it from people like Neil Bernard and the Physicians Committee for Irresponsible Medicine? <laughs> Well, they they do have a lot of uh, power and a very captive audience, but bit by bit, I think uh, I think the vegan fad has peaked. I don't. I think it's starting to bit by bit start to go downhill. Um, and you know, we've had the paleo fad more more recently, and um, I think the Western price uh, nourishing traditions kind of diet is is more balanced all around, and I think people are coming to recognize that ancestral wisdom is common sense. I think so, too, because, I mean, certainly the vegans can cite the whole China study thing, which, I mean, to me, is a bunch of pseudoscience, and it's not a study. It's the longest hypothesis. And, you know, the thing is, on our side, we have a lot of books as well. I think one of the most uh, powerful ones as it's reached a lot of the mainstream media was Good Calories, Bad Calories by Gary Taubes. That's been hugely helpful. Um, I recommend that to so many people. It is so well done. And that's been a huge boost because before it was almost like we were, we were fringe saying that fat and cholesterol were good for us. And once Gary Taubes got out a best selling book with the publisher Knopf, uh, that made a difference. And I think also some of these other diets, even though there's some disagreement such as say price versus paleo although many paleo members are also price members i think it is also a thing that for the most part they're really our allies because paleo and primal specific carbohydrate diet they all agree with the benefits of saturated fat and i think that that helps to have other groups along with price in support of essentially the same mission I think it's uh it's it's basically good that we're all we're all coming together in a lot of important ways. I think so too. And now speaking of books, I know you and Sally have a book that's going to be released soon. Um we're doing a book called Nourishing Broth and the publisher is Grand Central Publishing in New York. 
And we're very excited about that because it will be a mainstream book. It's going to get into all the stores. It's going to get a lot of attention and we believe do a whole lot of good. Uh, and people really do love their soups and stews. I mean, they're warm. They're, you know, there's a reason why there was a best-selling book series called Chicken Soup for the Soul. I mean, everybody just knows that it, it's feel good, physical, mental, everything. So we're, we're doing this project whereby we'll have a lot of great new recipes for soups and stews and gravies and aspects and, Things with uh, gelatin and genuine bone broth, and Sally Fallon's putting together that part of the book. And I'm doing the part about the health benefits uh, to all this good bone broth and how it can, basically, it's got quite a reputation for curing incurables. And what we hear about the most often is how it can heal the whole gut. And, of course, all of us in the alternative health field are pretty much agreed upon that no matter what your symptoms are, the first thing you do is you heal the person's gut. You've got to do that. And we need to use the broth to do that. So an important first step. And the thing that's so fascinating is we've got studies back, say, a 100 years or more, uh, indicating how how this healing is done. And this was, they were all studies done before the pharmaceutical drugs came in, when people actually used soup for healing and used gelatin for healing. Fascinating studies. I've always liked soup. And I mean, I used to eat soup because I thought it was healthy, but then it turned out it was all these canned soups, which they don't use the broth at all. And in fact, they use often vegetable oil. Now, is that something, those canned soups, that would likely be soybean oil? Well, your guess is as good as mine. Um, I don't think I've looked at an ingredient list for quite a while. But if you looked at those lists, um, you would find all sorts of things. Hydrolyzed soy protein, probably. Artificial flavorings. Uh, uh, some things called natural flavorings, which are real, really code words for the same thing. Uh you're likely to find, gee, there's could be almost anything. Wheat gluten in there, um, artificial colorings, flavorings, um, buyer beware. And what's starting to happen that's really interesting is that a lot of these manufacturers have all jumped on board with the government recommendations to cut back on salt. And you might think, well, why are they doing that? Because they always added a lot of salt in order to make this awful product taste pal palatable to people. Well, here's the thing. They're jumping on board with low salt because instead of salt, they're now using these chemicals that uh, basically make the brain think that you've had something salty. And it's totally artificial. They're not required by the FDA to even list this stuff on the, on the label because it's in minuscule quantities. This stuff has not been safety tested, but what it's going to create is an addictive pattern where people eat more and more because they're, if they, they, they might think they're getting something sweet or might think they're getting something salty, but then the body doesn't get what it thinks it's got. And then the body says, feed me, I need more, I need more. And that's part of being overweight and obese in America right now. Right, it's certainly that the additives to our foods are what makes us obese and overweight because it makes us want more of that. And I think that kind of fits with pretty much any processed food you'll find out there. 
you bet. You know, it's it's in everything. Absolutely. So, I mean, you know, it kind of just goes back to what we were talking about before, that soups is another thing where you'll find a lot of these additives of different foods. Um, yeah, if it's not soybean oil, I mean, then it could be also like corn oil, which is genetically modified most likely. Or, I mean, a lot of soups could also have canola oil, which is probably the worst of any of these vegetable oils. Yeah, canola's got such a reputation as being a health food and an FDA health claim for canola. But as Sally Fallon Morell and Dr. Mariani said, it's a great canola. It is. I mean, and, and that's another one like soy and corn. It's genetically modified. And there really was a con. I mean, I had a friend that worked in the movie theater and had been under the belief that canola oil is the healthy oil to cook the popcorn in and coconut is bad. It just shows how backwards we've been taught with education. Mm-hmm. So hence the naughty nutritionist. Well, outrageously and humorously debunking nutritional myths. Absolutely. So what are some other things we can expect to see with the Western Price in the upcoming months? I know we have uh, now the regional conferences. We've got a conference in Michigan coming up in March, um, one in Portland, I think, in the fall, and our big conference in November in Atlanta this year. So hoping to bring in lots of East Coast people this time around. And it will be a fabulous conference. We're going to discuss the use of traditional wisdom and diets in curing incurables, in preventing Diseases like cancer that have become epidemic and the use of traditional foods in the healing program. This is the theme for the national conference? Yes, it is. I think that sounds like a great theme. Do you have any speakers lined up yet to talk about that? Uh, we've got some. Uh, not quite ready to make an announcement yet, but uh, I will be speaking at the at the national conference and i'm going to talk about the healing benefits of broth the science behind that including the work of an amazing scientist named dr john pruden who is the founder of cartilage therapy and he was a good honest scientist uh did studies for major medical journals on using cartilage uh products to do everything from wound healing to curing incurable autoimmune diseases and cancer, diseases like psoriasis, uh, a, an incredible track record. And I had the privilege to do a lot of interviews with Dr. Pruden back in the 1990s before he died. And I was doing a book at the time. It turned out that Dr. Pruden died and he couldn't go on the talk shows. So that was the end of the book. Uh, but um, I can now include some of that information in the new book and at the next conference. Right. And so the first one that's coming up, it will be the end of March, the one in Ann Arbor. And we uh going to hear some more details about that soon? I think we will. Going back to the book, The Whole Soy Story, what do you think is the worst type of soy product out there? That's an interesting question, Aaron, because... The worst products would probably be things like the hydrolyzed plant protein and so forth. But in terms of what damages people the most, I would have to say soy milk. Not because soy milk is the worst product out there, but because people who drink it tend to drink a lot of it. And therein lies the problem. So um got to really watch out for the products that people will eat or drink 
consuming excessively. Right. And another thing you talked about in the book at the end was about how it can actually cause cancer. Um, a lot of people have tried to say that it's something that prevents cancer. How has the origins of that come up that people said it actually helped protect you from cancer? Well, uh, when you really look at the whole soy and health uh, literature, you start to see there's a huge amount of inconsistency and contradict contradiction in the studies. Um, but we have to look at the whole business to begin with of study design. Like if your objective is to establish that soy is health food or that soy, uh, you know, prevents breast cancer or, or whatever, um, if you're designing a study, you're going to want to come up with something that you have a pretty good idea is going to show up worse than soy. And that's one of the reasons that just about all the studies that are designed pit soy against casein. Well, casein is about the worst protein you could ever imagine. So casein is just so bad that soy protein looks good by comparison. And just about all the studies are done that way. So another way to describe that would be to say if you if you sold Snicker bars and you wanted to make them look like a health food, well, what would you do the study with? You know, you'd have some people having the Snickers bars and the other people eating, say, Twinkies. And that would give you a fair shot at having the, the Snickers bar coming out ahead. So with, with soy studies, they're comparing soy protein and casein. Okay, now casein, that's found in cow dairy. So now, is there any danger in consuming cow dairy products because it has casein? Uh, it's more a processing issue, but when you're uh, doing a study with uh, the isolated casein, you're talking about a fractionated milk product that's been damaged as part of the processing, and one which is um, very imbalanced in terms of its um, amino acids and other things to begin with. So you've got both processing problems and imbalances because of the fractionization. So casein is a problem when it's isolated by itself, but it's not a problem when it's in full in the dairy. Right. Now, if people have an allergy to um, milk protein, you know, casein may be an issue for them. But, you know, if somebody's got an issue with peanuts, it's the same thing. It's not that that's something that everyone should should avoid. It's that somebody's got an allergy and they're going to need to, to avoid. Right. I think that's the thing that's often confused and that casein has come to get vilified. I know even by like uh, some people that are pro like saturated fat have been against casein, like some of the paleo community. And one of the things actually that I've heard about milk that makes us able to digest the casein is the whey in the milk. Well, uh, Mother Nature put it all together for a reason. And even though I don't have a strong objection to say whey protein shakes if they've been done, you know, with the slow processing and its organic whey and, you know, the fairly low temperature processing, um, you know, Mother Nature put these things together, you know, the milk fat, the milk protein, all the, the milk sugars all together in one healthy package. And uh, the way it comes out of the cow, if it's a pastured cow that's been out in the sunlight eating grass, is very healthy. Once you start taking the whey apart from the casein and taking out the lactose and, and on and on, you're, you've got products and you've got something that's being divided up. So is it dangerous, too, then, to take just the whey from it and use, like, the whey to cook in things? 
Uh, well, of course, what we're we're doing for what we do is, you know, we 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 save some whey and we use that for, say, soaking our grains and beans, and we're we're using whey, but we're not buying ready-made. Oh, okay. Whey. And when I just said that I don't have a strong objection, say, to people who have a protein shake with the whey as the protein, it's not my first choice, but I always have some clients who are coming from a standard American diet and they need a shake for breakfast because they don't know how to cook yet. And it's, I consider it a transitional food and I'll do things like I'll add, say, a raw egg to it and few other things to make it more nutritious and at least as a temporary solution it's better than what they were doing which might be you know buying buying sweet rolls and and coffee you know from the vending machines and the cart at the office so you know as as a transitional product it's 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 okay right there's also a difference between whey from raw milk and whey from pasteurized milk yeah, and if you're talking about any kind of whey protein shake, some of them are better than others, but it's very different from what we're making at home. Well, Kayla, thank you so much for coming on the program. It's great to have you and explain all about soy and what's going on with the Weston A. Price Foundation. Before you go, please give the listeners your website address. We're just launching my new website, drkaylaDaniel.com, and I'm blogging and I'm blogging and um invite everybody to subscribe and follow me and learn all the naughty news I'm willing to share. Absolutely. Well, look forward to hearing the naughty news that you have in the months to come. Thank you so much, Kayla. And now for the desserts, how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. The documentary American Meat will be playing in LA this week. You can see it for free as part of the Young Farmers Screening Series as it plays in colleges, universities, agriculture, high schools, and FFA chapters across the country. On Tuesday, catch it at the University of Redlands. On Wednesday, it'll be playing at both Pitzer College and UCLA. And on Thursday, you can watch it at Cal State LA. Director Graham Merriweather will be speaking at all of the screenings, as well as various people in the real food movement. For more information, go to its website at AmericanMeatFilm.com. This Tuesday, the Weston A. Price Pasadena chapter has its monthly meeting at the Nature Friends Clubhouse. The speaker will be Jolie Asina of Coconut Cow, which makes all types of coconut products from water to milk to yogurts. Jolie will talk about the wonders and politics of palm oil. The event starts at 6.30 p.m. Check out the website westonapricepasadena.blogspot.com to find out more information. And finally, on Thursday, the Culture Club 101 also in Pasadena, will be giving a slide presentation on nourishing traditional diets that people around the world have lived on to sustain health and vitality. The slideshow presentation is a great introduction to the works of Dr. Weston A. Price. A meal will be served with it. The slideshow and dinner begin at 7.30 p.m. Go to the website cultureclub101.com for more details. That's all for this week. To find out more about my guest, my news stories, and my recommendations, go to my website at appropriateomnivore.com. Okay, well,